Okay, here we go. The Panda Magazine. He's about to get crazy and wild. Stay for a while. Don't touch a radio dial. The Magazine. Kicking it back. Sports talk. Listen to that and stay tuned for some giggles and laughs. Go. Welcome to the Planet Mikey Show. I can't believe it, but we're already already up to episode 41. You know, this is getting to be a habit here. Oh, uh, that was my number in Philadelphia. <laughs> number 41 for the Philadelphia Phillies was our yeah. guest. Our guest tonight on the uh, on the podcast, along with Ben Kitchen and Bill Smith. Uh, we have the one and only Jim Lomborg, Doctor Jim Lomborg, on the phone with us tonight for our uh, for our podcast. Doctor Jim, how are you? First of all, uh, Mike, I couldn't be better. I've um, I've made a lot of good decisions in my lifetime, like the girl I married and uh, signing with the Red Sox and being in the right place at the right time. But uh, you know, taking the time to retire when I did uh, from dentistry, it's it's worked out really well. Well, now you can add something to your list. Making the decision to come on the Planet Mikey podcast is a huge, huge moment for you, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know. I'm trying to wait for those goosebumps, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be a hell of a wait for you. Now, as a, first of all, just let me explain to those of our audience that were not born early enough to have a feeling for what you and, of course, Yaz did. For the nineteenth, for the for this, what was a moribund losing franchise in the early and mid sixties? Uh, let Let's just play a little piece of sound for those who who weren't awake or alive then. Here we go. Hit to Andrews. Tags you landed for one to throw to first in time. A double play. Now as Rich Rollins moves to the plate to face Jim Lonborg. Little soft pop-up. Petroselli will take it. He does. The ball game is over. The Red Sox win it. And what a mob on this field. They're coming out of the stands from all over. <laughs> what, an, what, an, what an unbelievable moment. This is something that Red Sox fans, Jim Lomborg, had not seen or even thought that they would ever see in their lifetime. Uh, that date in October uh, 1967 was that the pinnacle of your of your professional baseball career? Oh, absolutely, uh, Mike. You know, I don't think there uh, isn't uh, a little kid somewhere, you know, sitting in a room dreaming about uh, being in a big game and having something special happen, um, and for that thing to happen in uh, in Fenway and to be on the field and to celebrate with uh, with uh, all of my teammates initially and then uh, God knows how many thousands of people were out on the field at that time. Um, Everybody seemed just, like. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, this is so great. And then all of a sudden, this isn't so great. I want to go back to my clubhouse. <laughs> well, they were ripping your shirt off your back. They, I, I read that they took your shoelaces. Your, your, you know, you, you had they had your hat, and you, you were trying to protect your glove. But you were really, basically, in a mob, uncontrolled mob. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were, uh, or I was. Um, you know, thank God to the police department. Uh, that was on the field at the time because uh, by the time that I realized I was in danger was I was at the pesky pole and I said I don't want to be at the pesky pole. They pushed you. They pushed the you out all the way out to the pole. The the crowd just carried you out there basically. You didn't know where yeah, the heck you were yeah. going to end up. 
yeah, it was it was exciting for a while, but then all of a sudden it wasn't so exciting. <laughs> and a little nerve wracking. Now, just let's just chronologically, you were born in uh, in uh, San no Louis of Saint Louis Obispo. Is that where you grew up? Uh, yeah, I was born in Santa Maria. It's about thirty minutes south of San Luis Obispo. Uh, that's a college town. Cal Poly is there, but yeah, yeah I was I was born there. And you started uh, uh, with baseball, but like most kids, around 10, 10, 11 years old, when you started to, was that the first time you ever pitched? Yeah, it was like in the 50s. Uh, the first time organized baseball came to our town, uh, so I was 10 years old. But we did all the things that kids in those days did. Uh, you know, we all lived in neighborhoods. We all were in close proximity to a ball field. I happened to be, luckily, uh, two blocks away from... Uh, a great park in San Luis Obispo where we would call up um, and say, hey, let's meet at the field at 10 o'clock. And my mom would say, where are you going? And I said, we're going to the ball field. So we'll be home by dinner. Yeah. So you had all day. We, you had all day. To... And we'd be there all day playing all those crazy games that kids play. And now it, it's like, I don't know if it's what's happened, but I don't see that happening. When I was a kid, I did the same thing, go over to school and play. But now, nowadays, it's like you don't find those pickup games going No, they, on. they call each other and play Fortnite online. That's right. play video games against each other online. They don't go to the park anymore. They go to the virtual park. But that's I mean, that's I mean that that's obviously was the start for a lot of people's career and a lot of people now in the forties okay you were born in nineteen forty two so you're seventy seven by the way if if there's anybody that doesn't look seventy seven years old it's Jim Lonborg you look like I'm going to be nice here and say you look like you're fifty two maybe <laughs> well I have good heredity on my side <laughs> I guess um, so you got uh, you got into the high school you pitched in high school and then you went to Stanford. I did. Yeah, I actually went to Stanford uh, on a basketball, uh, quasi-basketball uh, athletic uh, academic. academic scholarship. Yeah, yeah, because the academia has always been part of your game. Uh, and being 6'5 doesn't hurt if you're getting a basketball, uh, you know, uh, benefit. <laughs> being a... I know, but the guy that was in front of me when I got to Stanford was 6'10", Mike. And, oh. <laughs> and all of a sudden I saw my chances of... Uh, uh, playing a lot of basketball at Stanford uh, to not be so good. So uh, there was a, I saw um, a bulletin, you know, try out for the Stanford baseball team, uh, the freshman team, and that's where it all began. So you go to Stanford and you're, you're going on a, was a pre-med program? Yes. And, and pitching and maybe playing some basketball all, all at the same time? Uh, yes, uh, but then all of a sudden the baseball thing became really good because uh, Mother Nature that had maybe slowed down my um, physical development all of a sudden said, let's put this thing into high gear. And by the time I was a junior in college, uh, you know, body changes uh, were so incredible that I was throwing a baseball um, better than I ever could have imagined. I understand the Orioles had the first interest in you, but by the time it was time to sign a, a free agent contract, the Red Sox had more money on the table. Well, that's so interesting that you say that, because, you know, uh, we were, basically, this is before the draft, uh, and so there were no uh, guidelines that were just... 
people that would talk to you and say, this, we can offer you this. I can remember sitting in a hotel room in, in winter, South Dakota. I was uh, pitching in the Basin League, and my dad had come back to, uh, to help close out the end of the season. And the Orioles had scouted me for two years and really thought that they had me. And then one night, uh, Bobby Doerr, the wonderful uh, all-star second baseman for the Red Sox, Love uh, was scouting. Uh, scouting, and uh, he he saw that I pitched like I, I threw baseballs every single day. And he asked the the coach Harry Wise. Uh, he said, "Why don't you let Jim not throw for a couple of days, okay? And let's see what kind of stuff he's got." So he watched. Me pitch a game up in Sturgis, South Dakota, <laughs> and I struck out 17 guys. Oh, only 17? <laughs> and so the Red Sox, all of a sudden, they became big-time players. And they jumped in with your signing bonus and got you in the Red Sox fold, thanks maybe in part to Bobby Doyle, but there was also Doyle, Danny Doyle was a scout. Yes, he was, uh, you know, and I think that uh, the Red Sox had had a pretty good year um, – when was that, 64, money-wise? And he says, you know what? I want you, I want you to tell all the scouts to go out and spend some money. Buy me some good ball players. <laughs> spend my money. Well, you know, the, the 64 Red Sox, I mean, this is, that was the year that I really kind of fell in love with baseball, and it was before you got to the Red Sox big club, but you were obviously in their, in their minor league system at that time. The 64 Red Sox, I mean, I think Raditz was the highest-paid guy on the team, even more than Yaz. At that time, yes, he was, <laughs> which is incredible. And of course, you know, Raddus never let anybody forget about that. But they had a bunch of guys. The thing was that they had a bunch of guys who, I don't know how to say this nicely, uh, weren't exactly exemplary hustler. I mean, they had Dick Stewart at first base. I remember Felix Mantilla. They had a whole bunch of guys who you say, well, God, it's going to be another ninth place year uh, for the '64 Red Sox. And then you joined them in '65, right? Yes, that's correct. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you uh, your first ever ball game was shortly after your 23rd birthday? Yes. And it was not a win, your first major league game. But uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, some of those guys were still hanging around in 65, and you were throwing, you were throwing sinkers, and guys couldn't scoop them up, if I remember correctly. Is that accurate? Yeah. That's true. My, the first game was against Robin Roberts down in Baltimore. Uh, Robin had been traded from the uh, from the Phillies over there, and he beat me three to two. Uh, I think I walked the bases loaded in the sixth inning or something like that. And uh, Robin Roberts came up, and I didn't realize that he was good as a hitter as he was. And he is in drop a double and drives in all three runs. Um, but it was. Not a bad first start, and then my second start was against the New York Yankees uh, a few days later. And that would be such your first major league win. Yeah, that was the first one. You you credit shortly after that, or at least in the chronology of this, that Earl Wilson provided you with a lot of pitching wisdom. What was that that you didn't know that you kind of needed from a veteran like him to illuminate to you? I. You know, the big thing, Mike, was uh, how to handle your emotions uh, on the mound, um, to, um, to not get too uh, high, uh, you know, because you struck out three guys in a row and you walk out there and you just think that you're, 
the cat's pajamas, uh, not to get too low just because you might have given up back-to-back home runs. Uh, <laughs> you know, he talked about control of your emotions. Yeah. Uh, you know, he talked about not looking at hitters. Uh, don't even acknowledge their presence at the plate. He said, you are in control of your destiny, and people in front of you aren't uh, significant. And that's, that's what, you know, would give you a lot of confidence. Dukey was always uh, in control of uh, of his own emotions as well. There's just a, a one note on that first win that you ever had. Mickey Mantle hit a home run off you? I think he might have hit a couple that night. <laughs> <laughs> it was that, that's kind of like, well, you put that in a scrapbook, but it's not the one you're talking about. By the way, the save in that game went to the monster. My dear, dear friend Dick Raditz. Dick Raditz. I'll have to just, if I can, just tell you a funny little story. Sure. Because you know, I struck out Mantle the first time I faced him. He hits a home run the next time, a home run, and then a double in the top of the ninth. We're ahead 3-2, to two and, and Billy Herman comes to take me out of the game. He said, we're going to bring in the big guy. And I says, yeah, I, all right, whatever. <laughs> and so Raditz comes on the mound, and he looks at me, and he, I hand him the ball, and he said, Lottie, he said, go in the clubhouse pop open a couple of gansets and I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's Raditz. <laughs> that is, is so true. And nine pitches later, Dick Raditz owned the Yankees in those days. He had, a, uh, I had my first big league win and Dick Raditz saved it for me. First of a hundred and a hundred was it 157 wins you had uh, lifetime. Uh, 157, that's correct. So that was number one. Now, in 66, you, the team still wasn't good, but it was starting to make a little bit of a, a move toward becoming respectable. And you went uh, to an even 10-10 and 10 record, but your ERA, your ERA went down. You pitched well in 1966, but they were still missing some parts and maintaining the careers of some of the older players. Uh, we'll get... We're going to talk about what happened in 1967 because that was the pivotal year. But I have a word here from our sponsor, and it's betonline.ag. You say, now what is that? Well, that's where you go. Now Now that they have legalized gambling in Rhode Island, uh, you can also get on the, the betonline.ag thing from your house and do it on the Internet. Uh, and betonline.ag has a special promotion uh, going right now for a 50% bonus. Is that what it is? I can't read the thing, Ben. Is that what it says? Yes, with the Could code you? of CLNS550. That's that it. Your code that you Where, want to use on betonline.ag. Where's my bifocals when I need them? Right there. Go to betonline.ag and get with the program because the football season starts this coming weekend, and that's what everybody wants to do. They want to get on board and Pick the, make the picks or, or, you know, throw the parlays in there and the spreads. I'm a nut with this stuff. I really am. In fact, my wife's, my wife's going to strangle me. But uh, <laughs> betonline.ag is where to go. And remember the code. What's the code, Ben? CLNS50, a minimum deposit of $55, <laughs> is required to qualify for the bonus. Please see BetOnline's general rules for additional items and conditions regarding bonuses. You're good with those disclaimers. We're talking to uh, the uh, immortal Red Sox Hall of Famer. He's in the Red Sox Hall of Fame since 2002. He's Jim Lomborg, Dr. Jim Lomborg, to many of his... Uh, Hold on, you buried the lead. He's immortal? He's immortal. Yeah, of course he is. What, is <laughs> what are you talking about? When you talk about baseball immortals in Boston, Massachusetts, you, you don't mention Jim Lomborg, you don't know anything. 
about what you're talking about. Um, I was just more t- I'm surprised he can't be killed. <laughs> He's like the Rasputin of the Red Sox. Have you seen him? He looks about 50 years younger than I do. And look at me. Anyway, 1967. Okay. This is where everything, the entire axis of Red Sox nation flipped. Now, uh, many would say, you know, the triple crown year, Yaz, of course, when, and you would say that too, Jim, that, you know, he was the singular biggest reason the Red Sox flipped the script, uh, you know, by having a triple crown year and just making all the plays, the gold gloves, the RBIs, you know, and the, the, just the inspiration on the field. But I got to tell you, without a guy who wins the Cy Young Award who's 22-9, and nine, that still doesn't happen. So you got to feel great about being – the A and B in that equation for the, the, the change in the history of the Boston Red Sox? Uh, you know, uh, just to backtrack a little, because you kind of touched on it earlier, uh, in 1966, uh, we had the second-best record in the American League um, from the All-Star break on, and that kind of, to me, was a, a tip-off uh, for how good we were going to become. Yeah. Uh, the Orioles won it. I, I think I'm correct with that. Yeah, 66. Uh, but we all left uh, Fenway Park in uh, October of 1966 feeling really good about ourselves mm-hmm. because how well we played. And it's so important psychologically, you know, for the, the fans out there, for professional ballplayers to feel good about themselves. When they go through a winter and prepare for the next season, that's the way a lot of our ball players felt uh, when we came into the season in '67. Enhanced confidence level, uh, and a part of that was the youth movement. I mean, I know that in '66, you, there, you know, it was George Scott's rookie year. Guys like Joe Foy, Rico Petroselli started to blossom. But when when it came around to 1967, April of that year. You had a 23-year-old, you know, uh, you had a 22-year-old in center field. You had uh, George Scott, who was born in 1944, so he was 23. You had Andrews and Rico Petroselli, who were both 24. Joe Foy, uh, you had a, and you were the you were the ace of the staff at age 25. Um, you know, well, you got some good numbers there. I'm telling you what, <laughs> I didn't realize how young we were as a team, but you know we. Uh, you have to give credit to the Red Sox for uh, going out and getting Dick Williams and a man as a manager, uh, because I don't, you know, no disrespect, you know, disrespect to the previous managers, but Dick came in with a little bit of authority, and we all kind of latched on to his uh, his plan. Um, was that you can play better? Um, he, I'll give you the benefit of a doubt if you make make a mistake on the first time. Yeah. But after we've had this conversation and you make it a second time. <laughs> you don't try that. Uh, <laughs> um, I said he was one of the most sarcastic guys I've ever met in my life. Sure. But he, um, he not enabled, but he basically inspired people to become better. You yeah, know, he raised the bar, right? I mean, he kind of like said, I know you guys are young, but this is how you do it. You know, Bill Lee told me one time, he said the difference between Dick Williams and Don Zimmer was that Don Zimmer and Dick Williams both had a doghouse, but with Williams, there was a there was a door to get out of it. You could get out of the doghouse with Dick Williams. Um, you know, there was. You just had to go out and never do that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> That's, <it. laughs> That's all. 
Uh, he was a tough customer, but he also managed some of the young guys in Toronto the year before in AAA. So he knew them. They knew him uh, a little bit. So, And he was a young manager. He was only, what, 37 or 38 when he took over that team. You know, he he brought – he was um, aware of all the kids that had come uh, through the organization through Toronto. And so he – he knew that uh, he had some ball players that could really play, um, and although those of us who were there before Dick got there had no idea what his personality was, you know, was like, but we ended up liking the fact that he wanted to win mm-hmm. more than anything, and we all responded to that very well. Yeah. You know, Yaz went through that uh, that preseason, the first time he'd ever done it in his life. He hired a personal trainer, which was unsaid in those days. You never, ever did that. He hired a guy by the name of Gene Birdie. Yeah. Up at Hungarian, the, uh, wasn't he? Wasn't he from Hungary? Um, no, I'm not sure about that, but he was, he maybe, was up at the club. Maybe I just say that, Jim. I think I just and said Yaz that because I'm hungry. He spring training, the best shape he'd ever been in, in his life. Yeah. And that's... He has to attribute to that personal trainer. Yeah. Oh, and he came out of out of the box strong. He he looked different. He he played differently. He was just uh, he was on fire from the entire. He intact that season. But uh, the the difference in your performance was you always you know had good control, but maybe too good uh, because somebody convinced you, and I'm thinking it might have been the barber Sal Magley, that throwing inside to hitters is a good thing to keep them back off the plate, and it kind of changed what people your intimidation factor, didn't it? Well, it, it certainly did. Uh, he did two wonderful things for me. He taught me um, he taught me what they call it now a four seam fastball. Um, I always threw a two seamer. It was a, a, a really you know a, you know wicked hard uh, sinker. <laughs> Through a wicked hard and a crackling. You had a crackling slider and a wicked hard sinker. <laughs> it was kind of like what Bob Stanley threw. It was kind of like what. Uh, uh, Derek Lowe through, but I didn't have anything that I could get out over on the outside part of the plate that had some zip on it. And Sal taught me that pitch and allowed me to have um, one more option about keeping the ball in the strike zone because when I got 3-0 and on, guys, I couldn't guarantee you that I could throw you a strike because my ball moved so much. Yeah, And then he taught me the, the challenge of pitching inside. And he said, the one thing that I wanted to remind you is that if you can make that outside part of the plate look a little bit farther away because you um, you need to have the opportunity to own that zone, he said, throw more inside, back people off the plate, that makes the outside part of the plate look a little bit farther away. Mm-hmm. And everything just took off. Well, and you know, Sal Magley was nicknamed the barber for a reason. He threw inside all the time with chin music to people and intimidated them, and that's how he got by in a great portion of his career. He was nasty. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's what they call a close shave. But, you know, he never uh, he never threw at guys' heads. That, that was the thing, though. There's a way to learn how to throw inside uh, without you know, putting uh, a baseball up in the zone where it's going to call, you know, cause a catastrophic illness right. uh, uh, or trauma. Uh, there's other parts of the body that you can aim for that's going to, uh, you know, establish the same type of fear in the hitter 
that you wanted to have them thinking about. Now, you, you, so you start to throw inside, and, and you know, we all re- recall, all of the, the, those of us that were Red Sox fans in 1967, hardcore people like myself, that you hit 19 batters. Now, just, just for fun, I thought you'd like to hear the names of those 19 batters. Ready? Fred Talbot, Mickey Mantle, Al Kaline, Bill Freehan, Davey Johnson, Vic Davalio, Joe Pepitone, Ed Brinkman, Thad Tillotson. We'll get to him. Dick Hauser, Don Mincher, Kurt Moten, Leon Wagner, that's Daddy Wags, Danny Cater, uh, some dude named Donaldson from KC, Jim Northrup, Mike Hegan, Ramon Webster, and Kurt Bleffrey. Those are the 19 guys you plunked in 1967, and I noticed that six of them were Yankees. (laughs) Yeah, which one of those guys were you happiest to plunk? (laughs) Well, I only hit one of those guys on purpose. Thad Tillotson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a so tremendous, a tremendous story. Didn't get out of the way. That's all. That's all. They just couldn't move quick enough. T- the Thad Tillotson story was a, a summer night. I think it was June in Yankee Stadium, right? Yes. The, tell me, you correct me if I got any of this wrong. I'm testing my own 19, 13-year-old memories. Right? When I was 13 when this happened. Joe Foy had a grand slam or something the, the game before or whatever. They hit him in the helmet. Correct. They smacked him in the helmet. Tillotson did. And then that started all this stuff. So Foy gets hit in the head. Everybody knew they threw at his head on purpose, I think, I would assume. And then up comes Thad Tillotson because back then the pitchers had to hit. And what does Lonnie do? Hits him in the numbers, right? That's I knew how to do that. <laughs> you hit him in the right in the back, right? He turned and it, ah, you got him good. So then the, all of a sudden everybody's running out on the field. I think probably led by... The hot-headed but loyal Rico Petroselli? Yes, he would be our number one fire uh, plug. <laughs> he runs out there, and all hell breaks loose. And here's, Now, they do a cutaway of, of Jim Lomborg standing on the mound looking pretty pleased with himself. <laughs> Looked like you knew you did the right thing. And, the, and so now what happens? Didn't they throw at you after that? Uh, yeah, I got hit. Two innings later, you know, I was surprised that Tillerson even came out to the plate because we were winning, I think, six to one, six to two at the time as the bottom of the fifth inning. And and Ralph Houck, you know, normally would have, uh, you know, I think pinch hit for him, um, but he came to the plate and I just said, "You got to be kidding me! <laughs> <laughs> this is my chance to he, he, he uh, exact some revenge." Yeah, you know, and it's just the way we took care of things. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, Patriots had to hit in those days, um, it's so much different now. Yeah. Um, where, you know, to get even with somebody. Um, and I, I don't think that a lot of the young pitchers now know how to throw inside because they throw so hard. Uh, but they don't know. The, their hearts start pounding. Oh my God! They want me to hit this guy. I don't know where to throw to hit him. And yeah, uh, you know, if you're not practiced at doing it, uh, it becomes a very scary weapon. Uh, well, plus, isn't cool. isn't there something going on now where because of the amount of times a guy can change uniforms and he's played with this guy already over here, and he knows this guy, or he could end up on that team next year. You know, the free agency thing has moved people around, so there's not that I don't know team. A team loyalty thing, or, or or the rivalries aren't the same as they used to be. 
Uh, some of them are, I think, Mike, but uh, not all of them. No, I, I think it's more of an attitude uh, uh, of pitcher's intent. Uh, for Thad Tillotson to do what he did to Joe Foy yeah. was uh, a major crime. It's a, you know the biggest crime that you can ever um, have in baseball. Yeah, he hit a grand slam the night before. Yeah, he hit a three-run homer off of Tillotson in the first inning in the next game. So the next time he comes up, you know, you don't have to – you can give him um, um, a wake-up call, sure. but not at the head. Yeah. That's the big difference. A brush, back batch, uh, brush back pitch is different from a head hunting. I don't think there's any question about that. But it, having the ability to pitch inside changed your season sixty seven, or changed your your career trajectory uh, to the point where I mean, you were you were unbelievable for that. You were nine and I think you were nine and two. And, and I looked at the record here on RetroSheet.org, and you you know you were six and one, but you could have been seven and zero. Oh. I think you lost a game in the ninth inning. Uh, you know, after eight and two thirds innings, a shutout ball, uh, maybe against the Angels or something like that. I mean, you could have been nine and uh, nine and zero oh, uh, at that point in time, and that was when the Red Sox knew they had finally had a number one ace stopper uh, on the mound, and that had to feel good for you and for the team. Well, it, you know, I was on a roll. I went down to uh, Venezuela <laughs> that winter to uh, pitch winter ball. The the ball club, um, they were happy with the way things were going, but hitters were starting to hit my fat. We, we need you to work on your breaking ball so that when you get behind in the count, you know, whether it's 2-1 and one or 3-1, and one, that you have the confidence to throw uh, a breaking ball. And I went down to Venezuela for two months, uh, came back home uh, just before Christmas, uh, and all I did down there was uh, when I got two and one on the count, uh, three and one on the count, I would throw breaking balls. Um, and that was a big difference to come into spring training with to, to have the confidence to be able to do that. Now, 67, I got to, you know, I know you've, you've probably talked about this a million times because the legend of 1967 and the, fi- the finale of that uh, team's season is is epic and should be ingrained in every Red Sox fan's memory. 1967 boils down to the final game of the year. Uh, Yaz goes out and goes three for four in the next to last game of the year. You beat the Twins. So now it's this final game of 1967. Jim Lomborg on the mound. The Minnesota Twins in town, and they're looking, they're fighting for a pennant in a four-way pennant race with the White Sox, Tigers, the Twins, and the Red Sox. And you you have a complete game victory. Uh, and the, the moment that we played earlier in the the podcast when Rico catches the pop fly, and as it should be, the crowd sweeps you out to right field, and all is different in, in Red Sox Nation. But you had, back then we had a situation, Jim, where the, uh, the World Series started just a couple days after the final out of the season. So you have to... The Red Sox have to send out Santiago to face Bob Gibson. He loses game one, game one, two to one, despite hitting a home run. So now you're back three days rest. You got another must-win game because you can't go down two games to none of the Cardinals. Um, that's correct, and that's kind of the way that you know the last month of the season went. Every uh, um, every game was important. Uh, we were fighting for our lives, and so it was just a. You know, I was in a four-man rotation, uh, you know, unlike, uh, you know, the pitching staff today. Uh, Bob Gibson was actually in a five-man rotation, so he he was pitching every fifth day. But that 
that was one of those days, Mike, where um, professional athletes will uh, say to themselves, whether it's a Joe Montana that has a perfect um, game of football where he hits every pass, or a Larry Bird walks on the on a basketball court and said, just give me the ball because I know it's going in. Um, I warmed up in the bullpen and I came out and I didn't have the best stuff in the world. So what that, um, what that, what happens is that your mind says, okay, we're going to become, this is going to become a mind game, not a physical game. And by the time the physical part of my game caught up to the mind uh, part of my game. Yeah, I had a one-hitter after <laughs> after nine innings. So. <laughs> a one-hitter, Julian Javier busted up a no-hitter, which would have been the only time it happened since Don Larson, uh, a no-hitter in the World Series. You were right there. What was that pitch to Javier that he hit, by the way? <laughs> oh, oh, Mike, it was a hanging curveball. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, in any other ballpark, it, it would have gone out of the stadium. Yeah. Uh, but because of Fenway Park and the th- that beautiful 37-foot wall, <laughs> so uh, the ball stayed in the ballpark. Yeah, so, so you got, you got must-win, final game of the season, three days rest, must-win, uh, uh, one-hitter, crappy game, Jim. I don't know what happened to you. Uh, <laughs> and now you, you, you win that game five nothing. Now Now you have to pitch again on three days rest in another must-win situation. Now, that was in St. Louis, and I think Roger Maris drove in the only run, but you win another complete game. You know, that's three complete must-win games How in eight days. Steve Carlton. It's like, hello. No big deal. Just Jeez. a four-time Cy Young. This guy is winner. indestructible. And uh, and so now you put the Red Sox kind of back in again. They what did they win game six with Wazlewski pitching or something, and you were forced to pitch game seven on two, not three, two days rest. Correct. <laughs> brutal. That's brutal. That's that's cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> well, you know what? I had a, a I had a you know God gifted me with an arm and it was like a whip, and it uh, it was such a different kind of emotion compared to the, you know the the way a lot of the guys show today. Although I could think back to last year about uh, how Avaldi uh, came in and pitched that game, yes, uh, in the World Series, but you know you just. What we knew we had to do against a guy like Bob Gibson was score early. Because yeah. if, you, if you did not score early, you were not going to beat Bob Gibson. And we didn't, and we didn't. Well, the thing is, though, Evaldi, and we all admired that performance by him, but he got a $17 million contract for, for one relief appearance. What What did you make as a salary in 1967? Uh, I made eighteen thousand dollars. Eighteen thousand? That's right. <laughs> well, you 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 know what's sick about that? Because it was, you know what? David Price makes ten thousand dollars every time he pitches the ball. I hate that. Yeah, but gasoline was only twenty five bucks <laughs> a gallon, Mike, and you know apartments were a hundred bucks a month. I so. know, but eighteen thousand. <laughs> oh my God! It's just it's it's unbelievable to he, me. He he made up for it. He made forty seven thousand in nineteen seventy three. 
Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh, now speaking of that. So, okay. So, 1967, Jim Lomborg, Cy Young Award winner. Uh, you know, uh, big, big, big thing for all of Red Sox Nation. And since that time, the team has never had to endure a losing mentality again. So, you got that going for you as well, uh, Doctor Jim. Is that you and Yaz flipped Red Sox Nation, and everybody should always remember that. That's what I'm saying. There, I've said it. Well, I think we just kind of uh, lit the fire, Mike, uh, that has been, you know, has become Red Sox Nation. The, the joy and happiness that we provided for all of those people in those days, uh, you know, and I still just get a big smile on my face when I think all about the great things that happened in the course of that summer. It was um, fabulous. We start, We lit the fire, Mike. The summer of love, baby. Now, uh, <laughs> now so the, I was very, very upset when the Red Sox... Now, you after the skiing accident, which we know about, you were a skier before you became a Red Sox pitcher, and, and you, 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 you hurt your knee, and, and that... Would you have loved to have... The way you were throwing the ball in 67, would you have loved to have been part of the year of the pitcher, 1968, when Denny McClain won 31 games, and Louis Tion had a 1.6, and Bob Gibson had a 1.12. What would a, a healthy Jim Lomborg have done in 68? Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we all know that things can change from one year to the next. Uh, I mean, obviously, Bob Gibson had a great year in in 67, an even greater year in 68. But um, it was a shame that we pitched so well because then they lowered the, the mound, Mike. Yeah, right. Hey, that's true. Yeah, even but I think in '68, even even Ray Culp and Dick Ellsworth were good. <laughs> I, I think oh I'm pretty I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, they did lower the mound because of all that, and uh, after what happened uh, in 1968. So now you you played with the Red Sox until 1971, and I was uh, personally disappointed when they sent you to the the kind of three three expansion team they, they, they the one of the th- expansion teams was the M- Milwaukee Brewers who had been the Seattle Pilots and they had a god awful roster and they sent you and Ken Brett uh and Boomer right to to Milwaukee uh for Marty Patton who never did squat <laughs> well there were there were a few other players involved there you had uh Billy Canigliaro, Joe LaHood. yeah Don Pavletic. There were it was a six for four trade. It was a ten ten player trade, yeah. Yes. Uh but you had I mean, you're on a last place team, you had a two point eight three, your best ERA in your career, and it like that that had to be mentally not sufficient for you. Well, you know, I ran across a great uh pitching coach over there by the name of Wes Stock and and he just helped me immensely about um, you know, the way I was thinking about games, I, I just, uh, he, he taught me that you had to pretend like you, this was going to be a one or nothing game, no matter what the score was. And for your mentality, your focus, <laughs> your discipline, your concentration had to be one or nothing, one or nothing, one or nothing. And it was very, very helpful for me. So West, you know, just by the way, West Stock... He's on. I have this uh, thing about names in baseball. The all financial team. You ready? Don yeah. Mon- Don Money, Norm Cash, Brad Penny, Reed Nichols, Barry Bonds, and West Stock and Stocks and Bonds. And then, if you want to upgrade it a little bit and modernize it, Mike Benjamin. It's all about the Benjamins now. You know. 
That's just the sickest oh, thing. You must sleep very well at night, Mike. Uh, I do. I, in fact, sometimes during the day, Lonnie, as well. Um, so you go to the Milwaukee Brewers. Thankfully for you, you got traded to a competitive team, the Phillies. Speaking of Don Money, uh, you went to the, the Phillies, where it had to be a little bit better for the competitive spirit of, of Dr. Jim Lombard. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, they had a funky year the year before, um, in 72, uh, Steve Carlton won like 29 games and the Phillies only won, uh, you know, like 37 30. games. <laughs> 30. Um, they were in the process of the way the Red Sox were in 67. Uh, they were in the process of having a Larry Bow and a Mike Schmidt. Um, and a Gary Maddox and a Steve Carlton and a Greg Lazinski all coming to blossom at the same time. And so, yeah, it was. It was a great opportunity for me to be with a, a team that was building and scoring so many runs. You just couldn't, you know, you would sabotage a pitcher just so you could start. <laughs> you, could, you could give up a few and still win the game. Hey, you won 17 games for them one year. You won 18 for them, I think, in 74, uh, yep. in 76. And uh, that's, you know, that's that was sour, really a sour feeling for Red Sox fans, knowing that the, the guy they loved on their team and that led them to this 67 miracle was winning 18 games for the Phillies in the National League. That had to piss some people off, but what are you going to do? Now, you, you finally hung them up in uh, 70, was it 77? 79. 79, right. 79, yep. And, and with 157 wins. Uh, by the way, you had uh, this is a stat I love because in this day and age, the complete game is a dead a dead animal, and I hate that because the guys that I admired what, pitching, you know, the Sandy Koufax of the world, Louis Tion, they completed what they started. You had th- 368 starts. You completed 90 of them, almost 25%, 24% of your starts you finished. <laughs> now, these days, the guy that leads the league has two. You know, it's like, what's going on? Mike, let it go. I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. Let it go, Mike. The Dodgers, the Dodgers, who we played in the World Series last year, had zero complete games. Oh, it's a different world. You know, I had dinner with Bill Lee and and, and Ferguson Jenkins, who I love. They, you know, I said we were talking about 1971, Lonnie. He had 30 complete games in 1971. 30. Yep. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. The world has changed a lot. So we all, those of us that have had you as a dentist, know that you had to practice in, in Hanover. Dr. James R. Lonborg, uh, DMD. Correct. Uh, it was a pleasure having you as a dentist. You're a professional. But what was weird about it, I thought to myself, you know, when you were, you know, doing all you did in 1967, you were drilling guys, and then you in a dentist chair, you're drilling them again. <laughs> yeah. With the same expertise that I had in both professions. Are you a more were you a more intimidating pitcher or a dentist? Because at six foot five, seeing a dentist yeah, come right. in it scares the no, shit out of some people. Be, you don't want to be intimidating as a dentist. You want to be kind and caring <laughs> and calming <laughs> and calming. Yes. Well, you did uh, that, as you know. I never talked too much when I was doing my work. I just let the silence. Uh, <laughs> You know, take care of itself and then just be there in case there were any problems. Now, is it true, though, that dentists have the special language? They can understand with three fingers in someone's mouth what they're saying. And I'm like, hey, good. Oh, yes, it was a nice day yesterday. I mean, is that a, a <laughs> I skill? Never, I never tried to carry on a conversation with a patient. 
it was I thought it was more important for me to just be silent and do my work and then talk afterwards. All right. Before we let Jim Lombard go, let's do a little Jim Lombard trivia. The picture, Ben, Ben Kitchen, who's here with me. Yes. Ben knows that the picture picture on the wall for all those years in the, the TV series Cheers was not Sam Malone. It was... Jim Lomborg. Truly. <laughs> Jim Lomborg, that famous release there. And then it, 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 did people ask you about that? People who recognize that picture say, hey, what, what do they do to use in your picture on Cheers? Uh, not really. Uh, I just I felt privileged that they, uh, they thought enough to, uh, to have that picture be Sam Malone. And, um, you know, I remember one time they, uh, they got broken into the set and took the pictures and a whole bunch of them. So they called me up and they said, Jim, we need another picture. Would you, can you send one out to us right away? And it says, yeah, I can do it. But, you know, by the way, is there any chance that I could get any autographs from all those people out there in that beautiful show? The cast members. Yeah, the cast. And so, you know, it was just such a treat. They sent me a uh, signed um, episode with all the, um, the actors and actresses uh, in the episode. So, yeah, that was a, a cool thing. That's beautiful. Well, uh, our best to your family, which is ever burgeoning. Uh, you think you told me you have uh, 17 grandchildren over 16 or something? No, we're at 13. Yeah, 13. We've had a good year. We picked up four more this <laughs> <Yeah>. summer. <laughs> Great. Boy, it does grow fast, doesn't it? Well, yeah. uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Jim. You're a great guy and uh, a tr- fabulous dentist. And uh, as I said, pivotal in the Red Sox history books, no question. Uh, best of health to you. And likewise to you. And it's just great to be part of this wonderful uh, history, this this book uh, in Boston called The Red Sox that just keeps going on and on and on. Dr. James R. Lonborg, everybody. Now as Rich Rollins moves to the plate to face Jim Lonborg. Little soft pop-up. Petroselli will take it. He does. The ball game is over. The Red Sox win it. And what a mob on this field. They're coming out of the stands from all over. They're just mobbing Jim Lonborg, and what a day this is.